So we've been uh, talking about Jesus, and uh, the this is all part of the uh, this uh, whole course is designed to get us to think about what it means to be a human being, and that that is a much more significant thing than we typically give it credit for, especially in modern culture, and in the modern post-enlightenment world uh, we tend to think of human beings as only sort of sophisticated animals and uh, according to scripture there's much more to it than that and of course in the person of Jesus we have uh, the one and only so far uh, example of perfect human being Uh, and this uh, also is something I think in the modern age in in, in modern conservative Christianity has also not gotten enough attention we tend to focus on the deity of Christ because that's the thing we end up having to defend The world is saying, uh, Jesus is just like the rest of us. We're saying, no, he's the son of God. He's the second person of the triune God. He's as God as God. And uh, this causes us to tend to forget about his humanity a little bit. And so in this course, we're focusing, we've been focusing for a few lessons now on the humanity of Christ, often in texts, that we point to to prove his deity, the point the author was making is something about his humanity, and we're going to see that very much in uh, what we have to talk about today. So, for example, at the in the text that's at the top of the handout here, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's a statement of the humanity of Christ. Uh, and yet that's a text we might go to to sort of prove his deity. Uh, He's really saying the image of the invisible God, that's the role of humanity. And the firstborn of all creation, he's the preeminent one in creation. And you think, well, how does the eternal son of God who has no beginning be the firstborn of creation? Well, Jesus... Uh, the son of God is created man Uh, so there's there's two ways we might take this text one is this is talking about the man Jesus and uh, the other is just a statement of his preeminence it doesn't say that the son of God is a created being but Jesus the man is a created being. This will quickly get your head in a spin, uh, which is good. When we worship is when we get our head in a spin. <clears throat> but in any case, the second one, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw his glory. <coughs> glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Jesus, again, is the word made flesh now we've been looking at hebrews chapter one this great 
opening of the book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ and it's sort of an argument against uh, people because of trouble and tribulation or trials and persecutions toning down the Jesus talk or going back to synagogue instead of sticking with church and the writer is like I can't believe you could even this is unimaginable because of who Christ is and his supreme position and this is his you know opening sentence he says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. <clears throat> and so uh, today we're coming to the, that last line, he sat down, he sat down. So far we've talked about Jesus as perfect likeness, perfect image, Jesus, lives in perfect relation to God the Father. You see this all the time in the book of John, which we've been looking at on Sundays. Uh, he always does what the Father's doing. He always says what the Father gives him to say. He is in perfect fellowship with God the Father. <coughs> he is perfect image, and that means he lives in perfect relation to the created world around him especially the other human beings. He is full of grace and truth. He is exhibiting the very character of God in his relation to everything in the world, especially other people. He's God's agent. When we say the word, he's the word, we mean he's the one who executes God's plan. This is part of... Uh, this is part of what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule it, exercise dominion in the created order uh, on behalf of God. We find out he's the heir of God. Here in this text, it's he, uh, he has been appointed the heir of all things. So he's the beginning of all things. He's God's agent in creation. He's the end of all things. He's the, the one who inherits all things. Then in this text, we see he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Universe is the... is. Uh, perfectly good translation of this word but it also carries the the it's the word eons the it's the idea of a a history so he's upholding the passage of the universe from the beginning to the end from its beginning in him to the end of, in him he upholds it that word is uh, a word that literally means he carries it along 
Uh, so he's the sustainer. He's the reconciler. And in this text, we see he makes purification for sins. Uh, he's the one who reconciles uh, fallen humanity to a righteous, holy God through his death. So today we're coming to the last item on this list. Next time we're going to talk about the implications for this in life. Uh, And uh, so if we consider how do we follow Jesus, that's what we're going to talk about next time. In humanity, how, how do we live in the humanity he has restored to us? Anyway, so today, though, Jesus is the prince. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's important to notice that he sat down. Because sitting down is a job finished. And that is the exact implication of this text. He sat down at the right hand. Now, you would have to say, if you read the Bible that the Son of God is the right hand of the Father. That's part of his identity. But here he's sitting down at the right hand. Now, one of the things I wanted to notice in this text is that is what we call an indicative verb in the present tense. What that means is it tells you something that happened. Well, I'm sorry, it's not in the present tense. It's in the aorist tense. It tells you something that happened, like it's a fact, and it's a primary verb. Now, these other verbs, he's the radiance of the glory. That's what we call part. That's what we call a participle, and that is in the present tense. He is. It literally says, being the radiance of his glory. That's a, that's a participle. Uphold is also a participle. Upholding the universe. And uh, after making purification, that is a participle, which it's translated that way in this, te- in this Bible. Now what all that tells you is, Those things are subordinate in the grammar to the main verb, he sat down. So it's like this, being the radiance of his glory, upholding all things by the word of his power, making purification for sins, he sat down. This, this, and this being true, this. And the last thing is the main thing. Having done this, because he is this, having done this, having done this, having done this, he sat down. Uh, All I'm trying to point out to you is the fact that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high is the main action in this sentence. These are ministries of the incarnate Son of God, the man, Jesus. Jesus is the one who sat down. 
the eternal Son of God became Jesus. And Jesus, being the Son of God and doing these things that the Son of God does and making purification for sins, something only the man Jesus could do, the man Jesus sat down. Uh, I hope it will become clear as we go how that is important. I want to think about this idea of sitting down at the right hand of God, and to do that, we want to go back to the Psalms. Psalm 110. Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, that's Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's very important in the text of Hebrews to identify who you is. And it's important to notice it's not David. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. <clears throat> so we just want to maintain the question, who is the Lord that the Lord says to the Lord, sit at my right hand? Okay, keep that question in mind. David's writing this. David is the prototype anointed king of Israel. Jesus is the son of David, the ultimate Davidic king of Israel. He sits on David's throne in the end. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, David says. This is, by the way, sort of an Old Testament proof of the Trinity. But in any case, uh, Let's go see what the New Testament says about that. Acts chapter 2. Verse 29. This is Peter preaching in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost after people have witnessed this outpouring of the Spirit. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, 
God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that this outpouring of the Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter is giving an explanation of that psalm we just read. He's saying, look, it's not, it's not David, it's Jesus. And David was really talking about the resurrection. Lord, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If we go a couple chapters in, further on in the book of Acts, to chapter 5, verse 29, here... Uh, Peter and James and John, I think, are called before the Jewish council. I'm going to start reading in verse 27. When they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You might remember at the end of that last bit we read, he said, this Jesus whom you crucified. (laughs) Okay. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now, in another translation of the Bible, it says, instead of enraged, it says they were cut to the quick. Now, what I want to observe here is when Peter does this preaching about Jesus being exalted to the right, raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God, there's two different responses. Back in chapter 2, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, brothers, what shall we do? And here, they were cut to the quick. (laughs) 
and wanted to kill them. Uh, very interesting, the two responses. What we're seeing is the testimony of Peter and David, by the way, that the, that the man Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. <clears throat> In Philippians chapter 2, we read about this. Uh, Philippians 2.5 Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God something a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> now, it, when we're reading this text, we see the the what's called the kenosis, the emptying of the Son of God. He empties himself to become man. As man, he humbles himself to the point of the criminal's death sentence. And God raises him, and then God exalts him so that he has the name that is above every name. And I think, well, doesn't the Son of God have the name that is above every name? Period? Yes, would be the answer to that question. The Son of God is God of gods. He always has been. He always will be. He cannot be anything lower than God. And yet, He has uh, condescended to be man. And as man, He gave His life a sacrifice for sin. He was raised from the dead. And he was, wait, who was exalted? Jesus, a man. Before Jesus was born, before the Son of God was incarnate, no man was seated at the right hand of God. Now, a man is seated there, one of us. A human being is seated at the right hand of God. An embodied man. So, uh, this is a very this is what Hebrews is noticing when it says he sat down. Who, the Son of God, who came, who made purification for sins, who was born a man, who lived a righteous life as a man, who gave his life a sacrifice for sins, who was risen, and now is seated. This tells us something about who we are that a man can occupy that position. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read this. Starting in verse 18. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Again, I would point out, the Son of God, the eternal God of gods, the maker of the world, was already uh, far above all rule and authority and power. So who is God putting in that place? The incarnate man, Son of God. This is about the humanity of Jesus. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want you to pay attention to what this just said about the church. His body, yeah, we're all used to that. The church is the body of Christ. The fullness of him who fills all in all. In the fellowship of the body of Christ, is and will be fully realized one day the fullness of God. The, in the, the human society indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God without any inhibitions. Nowadays, we have the Spirit, but we are holding Him back because we are waiting for the resurrection from the dead among us. In that day, You will see humanity like you couldn't imagine it could be. But even now, (laughs) he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We all, with Adam, we all followed the serpent. He says, uh, yeah, you once walked that way, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is that concept we were talking about on Sunday about our union with Christ and our participation in that union in his death and resurrection. And now we're going to see it goes one step further. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because we are united to Christ we are seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in him so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now we might say, well, what's the significance of that? I mean, we're not experiencing that in a physical, locational kind of way. We're here. What's it mean for us to be seated with him in the heavenly places. In John chapter 14. 
verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's quite a promise. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I think at that time he dwells with them by the presence of Jesus. He dwells in them after Pentecost. And so... Uh, what's the significance of us being seated with Christ at the right hand? In this case, it's ask whatever you want in my name, I'll do it. That seems hard to believe. Well, we need to think about what it means to ask for something in his name. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, that... Would it be an hyperbole? Uh, well, it could be. He repeats it twice. He emphasizes it by yeah, using a hyperbole. Mm-hmm. Wants to teach us uh, one of the uh, ideas behind it. Mm-hmm. That's possible. Hmm. If you ask me anything. Does he mean literally anything or what? I think the qualifier here is in my name. When I pray, I always say at the end of my prayer, in Jesus' name. Now, my observation is I have asked for many things, closing with that expression, in Jesus' name I pray, that have not happened. Now, I could say, well, he's going to do it, but he hasn't done it yet. However, I would say many of those things I asked for in Jesus' name, I later, today, I would not ask for. I wouldn't see the need, or honestly, I think that's, that was a dumb thing to ask for. Now, Jesus says to us that God is wise and he knows, you know, he says to those guys, he says, you know, you, you're human. And your kids ask you for uh, lunch. You don't give them rocks. Don't you think God knows how to take care of you at least as well as you know how to take care of your children? <clears throat> so God's wisdom exceeds mine. So I have most of what I ask. But this doesn't qualify that. It just says whatever. It says anything. But here's the thing. When I say, when Jesus says, in my name, he means under my authority. When I was a child, I could go to my brother and say, hey, you have to clean up your side of the room. And my brother would say to me, who are you, you, my mother? And so he's saying to me, you can't tell me what to do. Sometimes he'd just say that. 
by the way, this could go either way. He'd come to me, at, neither one of us were ever demanding that somebody would clean anything up, but you get the idea. You have to, you have to do this, you have to do that. Who are you? You can't tell me what to do. Now, on the other hand, if I came to my brother and I said, Dad said, you have to sweep the garage. Oh, well that has authority. Assuming I'm not lying, that Dad actually said that. So the question is, am I asking for something under the authority of Jesus, I could just say, Jesus says. Well, maybe he does and maybe he doesn't. But I'm, when I pray in Jesus' name, I'm invoking the authority of Jesus. Well, Jesus' authority is not always invocable. <laughs> so the question is, what kind of confidence do I have? If I... If I know, assuming I could know something like this, if I know this is the commandment of Christ, if I pray according to the will of God, why would the answer be anything but yes? The scripture says, when I pray in Romans, it says, when I pray, the spirit prays, intercedes according to the will of God. My prayer as it arrives in God's ears is according to the will of God, and he, the answer is yes. The problem is I might not recognize the answer when I see it. One day, all of this confusion on our part will be resolved. Uh, so, in any case, uh, we are pictured here because of Jesus' position at the right hand of God as exercising his authority on the earth. That's the thing we really want to notice here. Not this glitchy thing about praying in his name. But he's saying, look, because I'm going to the Father and sending the Spirit to you, you are, in, you are my agents in this created order now as the body of Christ. Matthew 28, this is a famous text, Matthew 28, 18, the closing of the book of Matthew. It's called the Great Commission. We often skip the, maybe the most important bit. We won't be skipping it today. We often start with Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus didn't start there. He said this first. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, I want to ask, wait a second now. Hasn't all authority in heaven and on earth always belonged to the Son of God? The answer to that is yes. He's God. There's no shortage of authority. So who's me in this sentence? The human Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, has been given all authority. This is the exaltation of the Son. This is after the resurrection. 
This is the ascension of the human being Jesus into heaven to be seated at the right hand. All authority has been uh, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. You, what's the connection between him having all authority and us going? We're going for him. We're going in his name. We are exercising his rule when we communicate the gospel and bring, introduce people to him, uh, baptizing them, identifying with them, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded, uh, all of these things. And he says, and behold, I'm with you. Now I ask the question, how is he with us? By the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus departs. He is with us by sending the Spirit. The same way God the Father was with Jesus by sending the Spirit. Uh, so the, we are participating in the rule of Christ from the right hand. And there will be a day in which our participation will be unhindered by sin. After the resurrection, we will be perfected humanity like he is in the resurrection. So, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It might be important also along the way here to notice what we do when we exercise his authority. <laughs> we make disciples people everywhere we lead people to him we point people to him we proclaim the gospel in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 famous verse again another great commission verse by the way this is immediately happens immediately before Jesus ascends into heaven to be seated at the right hand. So, when they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Well, that sounds good. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, a cloud took him out of their sight. You will receive power, you will be. What's the power for? Our testimony of him. And starting here and going, well, here we are. We're, we're at the far end of the earth from Jerusalem, that's for sure. And yet we are participants in this uh, ongoing proclamation of the exaltation, the death, resurrection, ascension, and rule of Christ. When we go into the world, the world looks like it's ruled otherwise. Yet we go, we announce the gospel of Christ. People have two reactions to that. 
There's only two. And then uh, we, we exercise his authority by the proclamation of his word. Uh, the restoration of full humanity in him. The problem in the world is no, none of us humans know full humanity yet. We have all grown up in a world of broken humanity. So it's hard to see. We can look at the best of the best of us. We can see amazing talent, uh, amazing uh, ability to think and exercise wisdom and intelligence or amazing physical ability. Uh, people do... <laughs> I, I, for some reason lately I started watching tennis matches or tennis highlight reels, really. And I, when I, I haven't been watching tennis, I used to be a tennis fan when I was in high school. I haven't done, watched any at all. So anyway, recently I just turned on this YouTube tennis channel and I'm like, wow. These guys are 10 times better than Jimmy Connors ever was. It's amazing. Like, like you see what they do and you go, that can't be done. And, you know, pick your sport, any sport. You see these amazing feats. Uh, how does a person train their body? Well, this is the best of the best of humanity in its current state. We can't even imagine what if the impairments of sin and God's judgment of it were relieved completely. Uh, and so we're participating in that in the church and we are announcing that possibility to the world. Uh, that is good news. Now, we've noticed some things along the way here, some of which I want to reiterate. Jesus, the man, represents us and rules. He, and he represents God to us. He represents us to God. He represents God to Oh, this is what Hebrews is talking about when it calls him the great high priest. Uh, he's the high priest of high priests. He's the ultimate high priest who gives himself as the sacrifice and is raised and seated and rules. One day he's going to stand up again and come back and exercise the wrath that we read about in Psalm 110 and at the same time bring about the resurrection. Well, this, this should uh, scare us a little bit, I guess, <laughs> in a good way. But anyway, the uh, Jesus represents and rules the the one thing I want to notice is Jesus the man earned his position. He gives it to you because he earned it. He just think about how impossible it would be to live in perfect obedience to the law of God your whole life. I mean, I break it without even thinking. Nobody had to teach me to sin. I was, as you know, when observe any two and a half year old 
and you see the embodiment of rebellion. Uh, no, I want my way. Ah, it's amazing. And Jesus lived in perfect righteousness his whole life. It's hard to even imagine what that might have looked like. It's maybe not so hard to imagine how it would have impacted the people around him. I'm quite sure they didn't all like it all the time. Well, in fact, they killed him over it. But he earned his position in his death. In Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, we read, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Uh, it's astounding. Uh, <clears throat> you should not get over the fact that it is a human being today a human being, one of us, is seated at the right hand of God. A human being is exercising the rule of God in this world. A human being is the exact representation of God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. There's more to being a human being than we can see. <laughs> I wish I could describe all there was, but we can't see it. Now, when this reality is announced you know, there in the book of Acts, I love these two responses, pierced to the heart or cut to the quick. My sheep hear my voice. That's all I can think of. People, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and people had seen this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, Jesus, whom you crucified, has been raised and is seated at the right hand of God. If I were you, I'd be worried. And they say, wow, what do, what do we do? He says, repent. 3,000 people repented that day. The Spirit moved in them. Or cut to the quick, ready to kill. If, if we uh, exercise the rule of Christ in our current calling, which is, by the way, simply to announce the good news of salvation available to anyone in Christ, some people will go, oh my gosh, what do I do? We say, trust in Christ. Believe. Turn from making it on your own to relying on him. Repent. Be baptized. Identify in the body of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> take your stand in Christ. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to say that. Or you, because you have called all of us sinners, are a bigot. And we don't allow bigots. You are not a tolerant person because you're willing to say sin is sin and God's judgment is coming. If you have a judgmental God, we will kill you. You can see that sentiment in the world today. In some places in the world, it's actually getting people killed. And we should not think, because we live in modern Western democracies, that those societies are immune from that emotion. 
we are handing away our religious liberty as quickly as we can to get some other kind of liberty we think we like. So uh, anyone who really believes in the Jesus that is can be judged by the world and Jesus teaches us to expect that judgment. He says, look, they hate me, they're going to hate you too. If they don't hate you, maybe you think, maybe you're... <laughs> your uh, association with me is questionable. <laughs> but anyway, uh, people are pierced to the heart, ready to repent, cut to the quick, and ready to kill you to kill that judgmental message. It's a judgmental message even while it delivers the way out of the judgment. I don't want a way out. I want you to accept my sinfulness. I don't want a God who will punish me because I like this sin. Even if he makes a way out of it for me. Still don't want it. In Revelation, when God's judgment is being poured out in the middle of God's judgment being poured out, People recognize that they're under God's judgment. They don't repent. They rebel harder. I'm, I'm spending too much time on that. The last point here, the church participates in the execution of the rule of Christ, especially in the preaching of, a gospel, of the gospel. In Christ, our own divine agency is recovered. This is the the point and purpose of the human creation is to act as divine agents in the creation. So, Jesus, so uh, God says, let's make man in our image according to our likeness. So he makes man in his image according to his likeness. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, rule it, spread out, take the glory of God that is reflected in the hum creation of humanity, all over the place. Uh, and his purpose is that we would be his models, his image bearers, his icons. <clears throat> and <clears throat> that purpose has been disrupted by our rebellion and our sin. And that purpose is restored to us in Christ. It's restored to all who trust in Christ. Next time, we're going to start exploring what that would mean like now. We are in a weird time. The time between him sitting down at the right hand and the time of him coming back for us. It's a time where these things are already true and not yet fully realized. So what's, what does it mean to be a Christian human being? How do, what does it mean when Jesus says, follow me? Just a little preview. It doesn't mean try to follow his moral example. It means something more. It doesn't mean, you know, what would Jesus do on a bracelet? It means something more. Uh, 
it, yeah. Okay. Well, if I don't stop there, I'm going to teach you next week's lesson, next month's lesson at the same time. That's all. Got questions, discussion points? You were talking about uh, Jesus. He was born, and then he died, and he went back to sit on the right hand of God. And I always thought he sat on the right hand of God before he was born. Yeah. Was he that? Was he sitting? Or was where was he? I think you would have to say he was the son of God. And, and you probably hear, I'm making this distinction here between the eternal son of God and Jesus, the man. The eternal son of God wasn't always a man. He became one. It is something you can't figure out how God could become anything. But anyway, that's not the question. Yeah. I, I think you would have to say the Son of God has always been at the right hand of the Father. And that expression, by the way, is the expression of the executive power of God. To say someone is your right-hand man, that's where we got that expression. He's my right-hand man. That means he gets done, things done on my behalf. He's my agent. Uh, we share the same agenda. We're not. We're united in what we're doing, and he's the guy that gets it done. And I think you would have to say that about the Son of God. The fact that he's seated is new, I believe, and that is the position of having accomplished being sent to do what he was sent to do, and now being sitting down is a it is finished kind of statement. And it's... Having been a man. Having been a man. And as a man. He's not just been one. He is one. Jesus today is a human being. <laughs> I admit. it's. I don't know how to imagine this. But it's what the Bible says. He is today a risen human being. He, is per he became permanently, when he was born, or when he was conceived, a human being. That's not a reversible condition. But it, it's, when it occurs, new. And so, for me, one of the key things for me to imagine, if I'm thinking about, well, what is it... What's the significance of being a human being? Why do we say human life is sa sacred compared to other forms of life? Why? Be because only this is this is only true of human beings. Human beings are created to walk in relation to God and to express e express that relationship in the creation, which doesn't share that role. Uh, one theologian says we are the praying animals. Uh, I, you know, we might say uh, dolphins are extremely intelligent. Maybe they're as smart as we are in a different way, in a different realm. But they don't pray. They don't live in relation to God. Human beings are created to live in that relation. To be in his likeness and so bear his image. Uh, 
that's a that's a unique sort of thing and Jesus is the ultimate expression of that humanity and he is making us that now we're not going to become God but we are going to become God's icons God's image bearers uh, we are going to represent him in the world and rule on his behalf in the creation It says something to me about humanity that it is possible to say about a man that he is the exact representation of God. <laughs> how is that how how can one of us be the exact representation of the almighty the eternal one? And yet that's what the scripture says. He is the image of the invisible God, or here in Hebrews, he is the exact representation of God's nature. Hmm. There's more to you than you think. And if we were freed from the brokenness and the burden of our sinfulness, we can't even imagine what it will be like to be a full-on man. Hmm. That was more answer than you asked for, Bob, but yeah. Yeah, you, you, did, you did ask me, so I guess. You, you forgot the other one? No. What's the other one? You know, I think you and I have maybe talked about this before. This is a sidebar to what we're doing, but the name came up in scripture as we were going through this. And uh, you remember the king and, and priest named uh, Chelsea. Melchizedek, yeah. Uh, he really, you go back and read the story, he only appears, I think, appears at uh, one time, and mm -hmm. it's about of yeah. what he did and everything, but yet when you get to the New Testament, so look at it, he jumps up all the time and he seems to be more important than the first time you read about the guy, because he, where did he come from? He was just sitting out there and he was a king and then Abraham went over to him and paid him 10% of his mm -hmm. capture of the, when he kept uh, kings. And, He's and also so, called a priest of the Most High God in the story with Abraham, yeah. Yeah, and but but yet it didn't, it didn't tell a lot about him. But man, you know, Jesus came up through that. That's the, right. Thing. Well, and we read it in yeah. Psalm 110, so, uh, which is like where he, Hebrews gets it to yeah. pick up that this is this, this is Jesus. He he should have had more story up there. <laughs> so we didn't say, okay, yeah, I understand why he is so important. But it, 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 then that, and that upsets it. Yeah, and I, it, we could do a lot, a, a whole Bible study about what's the significance of being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, we could just say a couple things. Uh, it's pre-law. That's 
that is one of the important things that the New Testament makes out of it. It's, it's the relationship between God and Abraham, not God and Israel mediated by Moses. So it's used to go back and say, look, it's always been by grace through faith. Some people believe, and I, I think it's a legitimate possibility that Melchizedek is himself uh, uh, an appearance of the Son of God. We know that the Son of God appeared to Abraham and that maybe Melchizedek is an, is an example of that. So it actually is uh, not Jesus, but Christ yeah. in appearing to Abraham. There's arguments on both sides of that, but uh, he is acting as priest of the Most High God. Abraham, you know, gives us tithe. Ten, ten percent of what he got. And uh, then you don't hear anything about him until David mentions him in Psalm 110. And then you don't hear anything about him again until Hebrews makes something out of that. Yeah. It's very interesting. And, but the idea is demonstrating that Jesus as the great high priest is in the order of Melchizedek and in that sense superior to the priesthood of instituted in the law of Moses. Mm. And yeah, so there's a yeah, we don't I don't know if we want to teach the whole book of Hebrews this morning, but that that's part of the idea there. His the priesthood of Christ is uh predates and is superior to the priesthood in in the Mosaic covenant. They're making these animal sacrifices day after day after day after day. They have to sacrifice for their own sins before they sacrifice for anyone else's sin day after day. And Jesus, priest in the order of Melchizedek, makes one sacrifice, ending all sacrifice, and is both priest and sacrifice. Yes. He presents his sacrifice to the Father in the heavenly temple, not in a temple made with hands. You know, there's all this, through the whole book of Hebrews, it's just a, look, you can't think about going back to Moses if you have Jesus. That's insane. This Jesus is so superior in every respect. I said I wasn't going to teach the whole book of Hebrews. Let's uh, pray and we can go. Father, thanks for uh, this time together. Lord, uh, thank you for the word that you haven't just left us on our own. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for his appearance, his life, his death, his resurrection. Thank you for uniting us to him in these things, for bringing us into your fellowship. Lord, help us to be true in, uh, in our witness, to share this good news with the people around us. Help us to be bold and not afraid of how they might respond. Fill us with the Spirit. <clears throat> Lord, we uh, just pray that you would go with us today. And uh, until we gather again tomorrow morning, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.